So two passages of Scripture this morning. Uh, to begin with, turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. And for those of you, perhaps, that are listening and watching via the Internet, we do welcome you and join with us, beginning in Isaiah 40, and then we're going to John 5. <clears throat> this was my mother's favorite chapter in the Bible. And um, I inherited her Bible and my dad's Bible. And it's always interesting, uh, especially this time of year, to, to thumb through their Bibles and see what they've what they uh, outlined or what they may have jotted in the notes. And this one comes to mind. Comfort, yes, Isaiah writes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out, and, I, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now go with me to John chapter 5. This is on page 890 in your pew Bibles, uh, so please follow along. I'm reading from New King James. That is in the ESV. Some difference, but not a great deal. We will be looking at the entire chapter. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. It's rather long, but we are going to look at a good portion of it uh, this morning. So I actually want to close with, or excuse me, open with the close of the chapter. So look at verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And if another comes in his own name, him, you will receive. 
How can you believe who honor, uh, who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I want us to look at this uh, morning, the words, the living words, interrogation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, bless us <clears throat> as these choruses that we've sung, these carols that we have lifted our voices to praise you with this morning, remind us that you interrupted the world with a babe in a manger 2,000 years ago for the purpose of interrogating our hearts and souls. And so may the Spirit of God perform his work this morning in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we talked a bit about uh, the Advent candle for this morning, which is uh, pink, and is uh, today is the day that we focus on joy. And joy is to celebrate the Messiah's coming. So I asked you this morning, have you celebrated, are you looking forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus? And I ask you that because the first coming is history. Are you longing for the second coming of the Lord? Because it is as sure as his first advent. About the fourth of the fifth century, advent was instituted for people that, were, that came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to fast for 40 days and nights like our Lord in prayer as they prepared for their baptism. Interesting. And so from that, 1,500 or so years ago now, it began to morph into a celebration of the Lord Jesus' first coming. So there's an expectation of joy with his first coming. And likewise, in his second coming, now, first slide, if you would, Brother Jeff. So last Sunday, we started to look at uh, a series of messages entitled The Controversial Christ. And if anything, if you know anything about Jesus, and especially what we began to learn that last Sunday morning, Jesus was and is controversial. Last Sunday, we looked at the world interrupted and we talked about Jesus' authority. This morning, we're going to look at the living words interrogation, how Jesus approached truth. And we've looked at two passages of Scripture here. Next Sunday, Lord, Lord willing, the living words initiative about salvation, and then the worship of the incarnate Christ, how we learn to worship. So the world we learned and we know, was interrupted by the incarnate babe who brought joy to those who believe. 
and who himself affects controversies. So last Sunday we looked at the intolerance of tolerance towards authority. And Lord, how that resonates with us today. This morning we're going to focus on the challenges of fidelity to the Word of God, to truth, within the church. And then, subsequent Sundays, the loss of the centrality of Christ's cross in salvation. And then the need to worship in spirit and truth, to live truth, not just believe truth. The devils believe truth. They don't live it. So from this passage and what we learned last week, Christ exalted Scripture. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. I want you to to grasp this uh, with some, uh, some seriousness this morning. We teach and preach expositionally uh, here at Flat Creek, primarily. We take a passage of Scripture or a book and we exegete it. We go through it verse by verse. But I want you to know this. We do not worship the Bible. And we're going to talk about this. In fact, the primary message this morning is the Bible is not to be worshipped. And that's the major takeaway from the beginning of this message. Now, I want to read you something from a quote by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Probably 150, maybe you're 170 years ago now. And this is the resonation. This is how it resonates with preachers. This is how it resonates with me. And he said this. He was preaching about the Scriptures alone. And in a a message about that, he said this, The Holy Ghost revealed much of his precious truth and holy precepts by the apostles. And to his teaching we would give earnest heed. But when men cite the authority of fathers and councils and bishops, we give place for subjection, no, not for an hour. They may quote Arrhenius or Cyprian, Augustine, or Chrysostom, these are early church fathers that followed the apostles. They may remind us of the dogmas of Luther or Calvin. They may find authority in Simeon, Charles Simeon, John Wesley, or John Gill. Simeon and John Gill were Baptist. We will listen to the opinions of these great men with the respect they deserve as men. But having done so, we deny that we have anything to do with these men as authorities in the church of God, for there nothing has any authority but, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Yea, if you shall bring us the concurrent consent of all tradition, we talked about tradition last week, if you shall quote precedents vulnerable with 15, 16, or 17 centuries of antiquity, We burn the whole as so much worthless lumber unless you put your finger upon the passage of the Holy Writ, Holy Scripture, which warrants the matter to be of God. Well, a preacher is quoting from another man. We quote from men because they are fallible as they quote from the infallible Word of God. 
So we're not promoting, nor do we intend to promote any man, and that includes your pastor. Jesus himself, in the passage that we just read, said, you look to John for witness. He's talking about the Jews. We'll look at that in just a moment. You look to others for witness, but these do not bear witness to me. I have a witness, and that is my Father. No man can say that save Jesus. The living words interrogation. Now, Christ exalted Scripture. We learned that last week. He clearly asserted its divine, essential, and primary authority. He scolded the Sadducees for their Old Testament ignorance. We'll see some more of that this morning. And they're negating God's power. When you downplay the Word of God, you negate the power of God. He similarly scolded the Pharisees because they elevated their traditions, and sometimes we do that as well, as equal to or superior to the Word of God. One of the reasons for the incarnation is to correct the Jewish and, yes, our approach to the Word of God. God the Son became incarnate because there was an urgent need for the world to be interrupted by the living Word's interrogation. How else do sinners learn of their lostness? And how else do sinners learn of God's salvation? Next slide. There are two controversies that Jesus, um, more than that, but these are the two that we're fo focusing on this morning. Two controversies that he encountered in his day. Last week we addressed the first one. The nature of the Word of God. It is divine. Spurgeon said as much doesn't matter what Spurgeon said, the Bible bears witness to itself. The nature of the Word of God and its supremacy over all human traditions and the sufficiency for salvation alone, Scripture alone. The second one we're going to address this morning, the function of the Word of God or the reason that God has given His Word to you and I. You hold in your hands this morning, and I trust that you have, have a Bible, you hold in your hands this morning a gift from God, and you neglect it at your peril. I neglect it at my peril. Last week, we talked about the authority of Jesus Christ that was given to Him by the Father and the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures. That is, that defines the nature of the Word of God. It is divine. It is supernatural. And we're going to talk about men and what Jesus thought of men writing the Word as we go through chapter 5 here. Today we're going to examine the function, the purpose of Scripture, which is to point and lead people to Jesus Christ, to Christ alone, the only Savior. Now, let's think about today, and we're going to look back over history, but cultures today, and that includes America, we're not the same as we were 50 years ago. 
Cultures today mostly take a too low view of the Word of God. They don't accept it as God's Word, as being supernatural, nor do they revere it as Jesus did. So how do we learn to approach the Word? We have to go to the Word and find out what the precious Son of God, how He, what He thought and preached about the Word. Not us, what He thought about the Word. Now there are others that ascribe to the Bible a view that is too high. And let me define that. Sometimes we exalt the Bible to almost a superstitious reverence. Most of your Bibles, and I think mine does too, has on it the Holy Bible. And sometimes we'll take that to a point to where we lose sight of its God's graced purpose. This is precisely what happened to the Jews, which is the revelation of the incarnate one. Why are we here this morning? To worship the incarnate one. Now, we can't worship him without the word, but we dare not supplement the word with other thoughts that detract from his deity. Now, good things become idols. We've preached about this a number of times. Families can become idols. Generations can become idols. Mean, you can just fill in the blank. Good things do become idols, and the Bible is no exception. Be careful we do not become Bible idolaters or Bible worshipers focusing on the Scripture rather than Christ. Now, we read from verses 31 through the end of the ch of chapter, but look at, again at verse 39 of John 5. We're going to read the first 16 verses here in just a moment. You search the Scriptures. The King James says, search the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, what was Jesus talking about? It's always good to ask that question. We need to find out what the interrogate. What is he doing? He's prompting people to think. Not just to read, but to think. So in this passage, we learn that the Lord had a high view of Scripture. And he criticizes the Jews for their going too deeply into manipulation of the Word of God. Next, <clears throat> uh, next slide, if you would, brother. Let's read the first 16 verses here. After this, chapter 4 is the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, a Samaritan. Okay, and we're going to actually preach from chapter 4 uh, in the last series of these messages. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, 
Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man had been there with an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said, do you want me, do you want to be made be made well. So there's a question that Jesus asked. Do you want to be made well? What do you think the man's answer is? If you had a serious malady and you someone asked you the question, what would be your what would be your response? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the, to the pool when the water is stirred up and but while I am coming another steps down before me. I'm not I'm an invalid, I can't make it to the water. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked without any physical therapy, without any medicines, without any, um, uh, any type of assistance or aids, without any walkers or wheelchairs. So what is a miracle? This is a miracle. No aids, no limping. He stood up. In fact, the, the verbiage here leads us to understand that the, the, the word for resurrection means to stand up again, an STI. And that's the f background for this. What this man did was, after 38 years, he stood up again. And that day was the Sabbath. Oh, there's, there's, a, there's a clue. That day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, is it? It is not lawful for you to carry the bed. So the, so the man was healed and he left. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, the Jews asked a question. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more. So one of the things that the Savior always did, and you'll find this in all the Gospels, one of the things that the Savior always did was, Okay, you've been made well. Don't continue to sin. He told that to the woman at, in John chapter 4. You see, the thought is, Jesus was, oh, you're going to be okay. Rise, take up your bed and walk. You'll be okay. No, he said, hey, you've been made well. Be sure that what I have done for you by the Spirit of God continues in your life. Don't go back to sinning. Now, of course, the man is a sinner. We know that we, we sin, and that continues. But Jesus was pointing that out. He said, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Now, this is a good thing. So the hatred of the Jews. Now, we think that the Jews here is a mixture of Sadducees, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and scribes. 
So all of the potentates of the Hebrew faith. This is in Jerusalem. And Jesus, we were told here in the first few verses that he made his way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on an elevated plateau. So he was coming from Samaria up to Jerusalem. And he sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. This is a remarkable passage. We see, we sin by either neglecting the word of God to some, or relegating rather, the word of God to some incidental, lesser place in our lives, or we worship the word and not the God of the word. And there are four principles that define truth's purpose, and we'll look at these. Number one, Christ's view of Scripture's truth. Secondly, the wrong use of Scripture's truth. Thirdly, the right view of the truth. And fourth, the need for obedience. We can be wrong, we can be right, but unless we obey it, then it becomes incidental, and it we relegate it to a lesser place in our lives. Now, we have seen in this passage, uh, look at verse 6, Jesus asked him a question, do you want to be made well? Look at verse 12, the Jews, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? These are questions by the Jews and Jesus. And then we also have read a couple of them toward the end of uh, the chapter, Verse 44, how can you believe who receive honor from another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? And then in verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? So there's, there's this banter going back and forth and long passage. Those of you that may have Bibles that have uh, red letters for the conversations and sermons of Jesus. There'll be a long, long passage here that's all in red letters. So let's look at the Christ view of Scripture. Now, Jesus makes extraordinary claims. Look at verse 21. Now, he's speaking to the Jews, okay? And his disciples are there somewhere, but he's speaking primarily to the Jews. For, verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to them to whom he will. Gives life to the dead. Now look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So two things, and these two things prick the souls and the hearts, the depraved hearts of religious Jews. First of all, my father and the son will raise the dead. And secondly, my father judges, but has committed all the judgment to the son. Now the Jews believe two things. Only God could give life. Only God could take away life. And then only God can judge. So three things. So immediately they're angry. 
Look at verses 25 through 30. Look at 24. Most assuredly I say to you, uh, he who hears my word and believes in me who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. But he has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Not the Father. They will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man, Son of God, Son of Man. He speaks to his deity. He speaks to his humanity. This is who I am. Do not marvel, he says. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of, my, uh, of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So he reiterates what he's already said in verses 21 and 22. The re-emphasis here to this group of individuals. He said, the dead are going to hear my voice, and my Father has given me authority to judge. So just in case they missed it, he says it again. Now, this is the babe in a manger who is now an adult and does not waver to exalt his father or the word. Now, the Jews, we talk about it, these, these claims resonated with the Jews. And again, there's a, the mix of the Sadducees, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, and scribes. So, in verse 18, notice what they say. Of course, uh, therefore, verse 18, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now listen, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Look up here. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, apparently he did, and the Jews didn't miss it. So this comes to, come, goes back to, as we talked about last Sunday, adding to the word of God. Well, he never said he was God. Oh, yeah, buddy, he did. So don't read into Scripture what you don't want to hear. And one of the reasons that they say this is because Jesus talks about judgment. And he talks to religious people about judgment. Now, they took his words as blasphemous. Uh, look at verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. We read about this just a few minutes ago. You have sent to John. He's borne witness to this truth. I don't receive testimony from man. This again was a criticism of the Jews. I don't receive testimony from men. But I say these things that you might be saved. 
I'm proclaiming, I'm preaching, I am establishing these truths. Unless you know these truths, you will not be saved. So we see the heart of Jesus. Now this is not cruel. This is the mercy of God. When we are taught or when the word of God is proclaimed, it is not cruel to teach us about the coming judgment. That is God's mercy. How we mistake, it used to be called hellfire and brimstone, how we mistake that. That's God's mercy. That's the reason for the incarnation. That's the reason for the interrogation, that you might be saved. You have to be delivered from this coming judgment. Are you willing to do that? So the giving of life and the judgment are both things that only God can do. So Jesus was challenged, but he had a testimony that backed up his claim. Next slide, if you would. Christ never based his testimony on himself or human tradition. But he based it on the nature of the divine word of God, the supernatural. We talked about that last day. His authority from the divine word of God. His witness, he said, is my father's witness. The testimony of the Bible is the father's testimony of me. We believe this, and as believers, it is imperative we believe this. We believe this because Jesus believed it. No less than the Son of God believed this to be true. This is Jesus' take on truth. Now, verses 36 through 38. I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, and he just did one, did he not? He just performed one. He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, was that healing for that purpose, or for that man only? No. Yes, the man was the recipient of the miracle. But the purpose was that you may be saved. We get wrapped up in the healing. But the purpose is that you may be saved. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor have you seen his form. And obviously, Jesus talked about this at the latter part of John 4. God is spirit. You'll never see God the Father except in the manifestation of God the Son, God's spirit. But you do not have uh, the Father himself who sent me has testified, you have neither heard his voice nor have seen his form, you do, but you do not have his word abiding in you. Now they studied it, and that's what he says in verse nine, 39, because whom he sent him, you do not believe. It's the interrogation of scripture and sinners' lives that causes them to come to faith. This is what brings them to salvation. Now this group of Jews here could not reconcile Christ as the Messiah because you do not have the Word abiding in you. It has to take up residence in you. 
So Jesus is saying this. He says they didn't believe the testimony of the, from the Old Testament that Jesus was the sent one. He's too plain. He's from Galilee, all manner of things. Furthermore, and here's the thing too, Christ expected the Jews, and he expects Flat Creek, to believe and practice what he believed and what he practiced in regard to Scripture's truth. Now, here's the thing. We, a couple of weeks ago, we started with this. <clears throat> Only God would expect and command such devotion. I could say it, but it doesn't carry any weight. The president could say it, but it wouldn't carry any weight. Only God would expect and demand such devotion. Jesus understood that humans were used to write the Bible. Now, here's, here's one of the great things about his respect for the Bible. He understood that human beings, 40 authors of the Bible, and he knew that plain old sinning human beings were used by the Spirit of God to write the Bible. But this did not prohibit him, dissuade him from claim, claiming that Scripture has authority. How many times you heard that? Well, the Bible's written by men, so you can't trust it. How many of you own books this morning that were not written by men and women? Let me see your hands. Not a lot. So what is it about the Bible that causes people to get their robes in a bind, as the Jews did, versus what you may learn in Science, we're following the science. Or versus what we may learn in, in just fill in the blank. In marketing, in engineering, in nursing, in doctoring, in, in all manner of things. What is it about the Word? So that's a fool's error. Jesus himself knew, in fact, he quotes Moses at the end, does he not? So this is Jesus' take on the authority of the Word of God. In 2 Peter, we're not there yet, but in chapter 1 it says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Very clear, very plain. God did not speak. God did not dictate the Word, by the way. God did not speak in ways to obliterate human personality. John's writing this gospel. I love John. John, is, John was a gospel. He wrote the gospel of love. Well, this, and we see love here, don't we? Because Jesus is talking about salvation. God did not speak to obliterate human personalities. He didn't. God did not speak. The Spirit of God did not dictate the word to these 40 men. Nor what Peter 
And we could spend two or three Sundays looking at why we trust the Old Testament and why we trust the New Testament. But the basic takeaway here is Jesus trusted him. Next slide. So here's the thing. God spoke. Human author spoke. Neither truth distracts from the other. Verse 39 and 40 is actually the crux of this passage. The controversy that Jesus had with the Jews was not over their view of Scripture, but their use of Scripture. They misunderstood the Bible's purpose. They got the use of Scripture wrong. Intelligent though they were, they neglected to see the purpose of the Word of God. Now we'll cover number two and then we'll stop this morning because it's going to take quite a bit to get through that. I thought I could get through it, but I was wrong. I was wrong, okay? The wrong use of Scripture's truth. If we had time, we go back to Matthew chapter 4, <clears throat> we could see Satan's temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan, on three occasions, as he's tempting the Lord, he quotes Scripture. But every time he quotes it, it is in error. Not the Scripture, but the way he uses it. So just because somebody is profound in their understanding and knowledge of Scripture does not mean that they've been born again clearly understand that. Christ indicated their study of Scripture was diligent. That's what he says, verse 39. You search the Scriptures. You are diligent in doing that. The word search there means you've investigated the Scriptures thoroughly. It also can mean an interrogation. You have asked many, many uh, important and yes pertinent questions about scripture they searched as the trinity searches people's hearts and the holy spirit searches the depths of god for this jesus commends them you search the scripture Jesus added the phrase, but you think. Notice what he says. You search the scriptures for in them you think. You don't know. You think you have eternal life. Is eternal life in the scriptures. Well, Jesus answered that question. And these are they which testify of me. 
they testify of me. That's the witness. Yeah, John was a witness, John the Baptist. I don't receive witness of men, don't receive testimony of men, only my Father. But the Scriptures, when understood correctly, testify of me. In fact, Jesus is saying, you know, it's seemingly a good thing to believe the Scriptures, and it is. So, the Jews regarded their study as more than the purpose of Scripture. As greater than the purpose of Scripture. And the purpose of Scripture is, as Jesus said in verse 34, that you may be saved. How distorted that is in reality today. No, the purpose of Scripture is to make you healthy, it's to make you wealthy. It's to make you wise. Jesus said the purpose of Scripture was to testify of me, and by me, through me, you will be born again. Bishop Westcott, the 18th century, wrote, Study for them was, talking about the Jews, study for them was that miracle, that minute rather, intense investigation of Scripture which issued in the allegorical and mystical interpretations of the Midrash. Last Sunday we talked about um, the, uh, the, uh, the pieces that were used to come together, the books that were used to come together to make the Talmud. Um, and from that we learned of the Gemara, we talk about the Talmud, but the Midrash was the way Rabbis. Now, Jesus at this time was a rabbi. They referred to him as rabbi. A midrash is uh, the way the rabbis exegeted as they interpreted scripture. And all these books that came together, Put together in the Talmud. We talked about that. The word itself means textual interpretation. So what Jesus is saying, you search the scripture for in them you think ye have eternal life. You are interpreting according to some teaching rabbi and their midrash, their interpretation of the Old Testament. You're not looking for me. You're looking for all the jots and the tittles. Next slide. It's a uh, rabbinic reading. When Jesus quoted the Old Testament and then he would go and interpret it, that would be his midrash. To discern the value in the text of the words and the letters and potentially revelatory spaces. So what happened was, and this is what Jesus is saying, they reimagined the dominative narrative now, the Old Testament was chock-block full of narrative. And so they looked at the Old Testament and they crafted new narratives to stand alongside, not replace, the former readings. So they ended up with this collection of interpretations that was even broader than the Old Testament itself.
Now, we do owe them a debt of thanks for the accuracy of the Old Testament. And when you study uh, biblical interpretation and go into all manner of detail, he says they would, they would even count the number of words. By the way, there are less than a million words in the English Bible. But the Hebrews would even count the number of words. They would become so, they were so meticulous that they counted even the letters. And then they would divide the words into syllables of each book. And it would take them years to copy the Old Testament. But each time they did, in their midrash, now they would write this in a separate book. They wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, pollute the Old Testament. They would write it in separate scrolls. Well, perhaps this is what this is saying. So they were, they were very, very aware of what the Old Testament said. Allegedly, and that's what Jesus is saying, if you do, if you do it this way, you think you have eternal life. Because they were proud of their accuracy. They neglected the message of Scripture. Now, none of you have ever done this before, but I know that uh, we have some students that uh, have just finished uh, exams, or perhaps you're waiting to take your exams, but you take your book, and you open your book and you say, well, I know I'm going to have this question on the exam, and so I'm going to memorize this. And you go through and you memorize all of this so that when the teacher gives the exam, all you have to do is put down the jot and the tittle. You've memorized it and so forth. But do you remember it? In many cases, I didn't. Because I was more concerned about the message, or rather, uh, more concerned about the meaning than the message. None of you have ever done that, but I have. To study, to know, to memorize, to quote the Word of God for them was the gateway to eternal life. Not Jesus, not the Messiah. So they were so absorbed in the words that they ignored the truth of the Word. The truth of the words they so fastidiously copied. Now we have an example of this in Acts 17. Paul is at Berea. Luke records when they arrived at Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They were looking for and to, uh, the Old Testament scriptures to confirm that what Paul was preaching about Jesus Christ was indeed true. And they did. Therefore, many of them believed. They came to faith. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul in Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds just like these. So what Luke is writing is probably, I would say, 20 years or so. Hence, past what John is writing here in John 5. And the Jews, many of them, hadn't changed their tune at all. 
and many today are that way. Next slide. The Jews at Bethesda had no heart's desire to study the Old Testament in search of, of Emmanuel. Now they wanted to see if there was a conspiracy or if there was some numerology or if there was some superstition that they could derive from the Old Testament, but they missed Jesus. They studied as an end to itself. But in this, they were badly mistaken. And any time you miss Jesus, you sin. Any time. You sin. Next Sunday, we'll begin to look at the right use of Scripture. But understand that what we're looking at in this particular passage of Scripture is Jesus correcting their wrong way of looking at Scripture. We have Bethlehem because not only of Micah chapter 5, that prophecy, but all of the other prophecies that go hand in hand. Jesus himself. Now, this was not only unique to the Jews in Bethesda. This was unique, or this was a problem for the disciples as well. And we'll look at that in Luke 24 next Sunday morning. So we have looked at this morning Christ's view of Scripture, Scripture's truth. So what I want you, want you to take away from that, this is what I want. This is what the purpose of this is. Christ understood there were human authors to the Old Testament and obviously to the New Testament, but he wasn't concerned about them because the Holy Spirit guided them. So that should be our approach to Scripture. And secondly, the wrong use of Scripture. We can miss the message, which is Jesus, and we become, can become so focused on the meaning that we lose sight that these words were given in order we might be, that we may be saved. That is part of the living words interrogation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have to be in your house again this, this day. Father, we thank you for the Word. The Word bears witness to Jesus. Yes, we see ourselves in there, but only as sinners. And so remind us of that again. If there's any today, Lord Jesus, that knows you not as Savior, may they not miss the beauty and the impact of the grace and mercy of the message of Jesus Christ and understand that the message is meant for them in order that they may be delivered from the coming judgment. We thank you, Father. In fact, you encourage us to search the Scriptures, but we are told that in seeking the Word, we should find the Savior. And so grant that this morning. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <laughs> so we're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. And as we do, 
the message is very simple. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and perhaps you have, people, people can live years in a church and hear the Word of God or read the Word of God and so forth, and we talk about some of this next Sunday morning, and miss Jesus and think because they come to church, think because they have a Bible that they've inherited eternal life. God gave us his word to point to Jesus. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, we trust that you do. Don't think, know, and then in faith, confess your sins and call out to Jesus and receive him as Savior. And that is the promise of each and every Christmas season, the promise of every Easter season, the promise of every Lord's Day. Jesus is coming again to receive his people to himself. As we sing, make your way out of the pew. We can take you to a private prayer room, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and you can leave here this morning with that truth applied to your life, a change as a child of God. Maybe the Lord is leading you into the fellowship of this church by a statement of faith or perhaps by baptism. Obedience in baptism, we encourage you likewise to uh, make that uh, choice this morning as a child of God. Um, it's, it's easy. I love to study, but it's easy sometimes in the, in the morass. Sometimes it's a morass of study. It's easy to overlook that the purpose of the study is to point us to Christ and to point others to Christ. What number, Brother Vance? 